Am I on? <laughs> um, good morning. It is really a privilege to get to speak to y'all this morning. For those, um, as Pam said, my name is Juliana. I'm married to Nathan, who's one of the leaders here at Harvest Church. And if you can't tell, I'm an American. Born and raised, um, I grew up in a Christian home, and I accepted Christ as my Savior as a young girl. Um, I knew the stories of the Bible inside and out, and I loved Jesus, and I wanted to honor Him um, with my life. And so, after graduating from university, I had the opportunity to live in Turkey, a predominantly Muslim country, for several years, and I was there teaching at an international school. Um, And because we were an English-speaking international school, we were able to teach um, religious education from a Judeo-Christian perspective, which was such a privilege to get to teach the Bible daily in a predominantly Muslim country. Um, And it was in this season as a 22-year-old that I began, um, that my eyes were opened to the treasures of the Old Testament. And God really began to make me um, think about what it must have been like to have been an Israelite thousands of years ago. Um, And as I taught these stories to the children that I had known for so long, I began to really just contemplate um, what these stories meant, not just back then, they weren't just historical stories, but what they could mean for us today um, in the present day, in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. Um, And I began to just think about what it must have been like you know, to have been an Israelite, to have been living in slavery for, thousand, for 400 years, waiting and believing God would free you, God would release you, um, to have been freed from um, slavery and to be living in the desert, waiting for the promised land and knowing that God was faithful, but still doubting the season of being in the desert and still complaining and still questioning, oh, I wish we could go back to being slaves in Egypt. Um, to be caught in a terrible cycle of sin and regret, Um, to have to sacrifice animals for your sins, and yet it never really quite cleared the conscience, Um, to not be allowed to enter the tabernacle, but to have to send the high priest in for you, and you would sit outside waiting, hoping forgiveness would come, hoping your offering would be pleasing and acceptable to God, hoping that it would be enough. And it changed me forever that season because I knew that there was hope, And I knew that hope was Jesus. And I finally began to understand how everything from the Old Testament points to Jesus. All the stories, everything that God allowed his people to go through was pointing to the promised Messiah, the promised Savior, Jesus. The Old Covenant was a shadow of the beautiful things that would come in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. And that is my prayer for us today. Hebrews 4 says that we can approach God with confidence because of what Jesus has done. And I believe that he is here with us today, and I believe that he wants to teach and challenge and change us today. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9 today. Um, If you want to turn there, I'm also going to have it up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible with you today, Hebrews is found in the New Testament towards the very end um, of the Bible um, comes after Philemon, Hebrews, and then between Philemon and James. Um, so the book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrew people. Um, it was written about 68 AD, um, so 68 years after Jesus was born, and probably about 35 years after he died. And so Jesus had come, he had brought a new covenant, a new way, a new system to the people, but the Hebrews were very much tempted to still depend on the old system. 
And so this is what the author of Hebrews is saying to them um, today. So the, we're going to start in verse 1, reading, and I'll um, should be up on the screen. Awesome, thanks. So in verse 1, it says, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. And so just looking a bit at the physical requirements for the um, tabernacle. I think there's a picture awesome. So the outer courts was the area where the people would come and bring their animals and where they would actually sacrifice them. But then that first room was called the holy place. And it was the place where the um, lampstand, the table, and the consecrated or holy bread was kept. And then you can see there's a curtain in between the smaller room, the back room, the second room. It was called the most holy place. And that was where the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And the Ark of the Covenant had three very specific things in there. The jar of manna, Aaron's staff, who was Moses' brother, who led the people out of Egypt, and then the Ten Commandments. In the Ark of the Covenant, they carried with them place to place. The tabernacle was a tent. It was the place that God dwelt. And God gave very specific instructions to Moses whenever he um, told Moses how to construct it. Because he he was very intentional about the things that he had put in the tabernacle and the way that it was formed. Um, they have great historical and spiritual significance. Uh, we can't look at it all now, as the author says in verse 5. We'd have to spend a lot of time in Exodus and Leviticus studying it. But I just want you to know that God was very intentional about the things that he put in the tabernacle. Um, he chose to have specific things in there to remind his people of his faithfulness to them in the past but also that they could look to the future knowing he would remain faithful to them in the future. And so now that was a little bit just about the physical requirements. Looking now at the ministry requirements in verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that was only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order the new covenant being applied in Christ. And so the first thing I notice about this section is just that the priest entered the first room regularly. So when God set up the 12 tribes of Israel, one of the tribes was called the tribe of Levi, and God gave the priesthood, the responsibility of the priesthood to the tribe of Levi. And so the priest came from the Levi tribe, and um, they entered into that first room, the bigger room, regularly. But only the priest could go in. And it was a regular thing that they went in sacrificing um, and offering up um, gifts as a hoping for forgiveness. But then the, the second room, the most holy place, was only where the great high priest, 
the high priest would enter, and he would only enter this one person once a year on the Day of Atonement. Um, The Day of Atonement was the day that God's presence would come down on the temple. He would enter in and meet with the high priest, and the high priest would offer gifts and sacrifices not only for his sin, because he was sinful as a human, but also for the sins of his people. And um, that was only once a year. And, it was, and they would even, um, I remember um, learning as a child when studying this, they would tie a string to the high priest's leg in case he died in there because no one was able to go in and get him because if, if something were to happen to him, they could pull him out because they knew it was a place they could not go. Only the high priest from Levi, from the tribe of Levi, could go in. But these verses also tell us in verse 9 and 10 that these gifts and sacrifices couldn't clear the conscience of the worshiper. They weren't enough. Um, A couple months after Nathan and I got engaged, I noticed that my engagement band was starting to discolor. And so one of the trips that I was back in England visiting him, we took it into the ring shop and we showed them, explained what happened, and they said that they they could have it fixed, but they would have to send it off for about a week or so. Well, I was living in Turkey at this time, and so I knew I was only there for the weekend, so I knew I was going to have to go back to Turkey without my engagement ring. And so, um, and I would see Nathan about a month later. Um, but, so when I got back to Turkey, my ring finger felt so empty, so I went and bought a cheap ring um, in Turkey just to have something on my finger as a reminder to me, but also just as a symbol to everyone that I saw that I was engaged um, and until I got to have my original ring back. Um, and so about a month later, Nathan came to visit for a friend's wedding, and I remember being so excited to have the ring he gave me back on my finger. Um, but wouldn't it have been ridiculous if I had said to him, you know what, I've gotten really used to this ring that I bought in Turkey. I'll probably, I'll just keep it. You, you can, I don't really want the other ring, the real ring. Um, first off, the ring he had bought me was a real diamond, and the ring I bought in Turkey was not. It was fake. It was cheap. I just purchased it kind of on a whim. But also, second, the ring he had purchased me um, was what he intended for me to wear. Even though the ring I had was a good substitute for that season of not having a ring, it was never what was intended for me to wear long term. So it would have been ridiculous for me to have continued to keep the fake ring. He had a real ring for me, a better ring. Um, And this is what the author of Hebrews is saying here. The Old Covenant was a symbolic way to represent inter-repentance for the sinner and God's divine forgiveness. But it was always a temporary solution. It was never the intended way that we were supposed to live. Now, I know for many of us today, we probably aren't tempted to go into the tabernacle and offer animal sacrifices for our sins. But what things do we try to do to offer for forgiveness? What regulations of worship do we sometimes cling to? This is an area I have to check my heart in a lot. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church in small town America. It was the Bible Belt, and it was very cultural to attend church. Um, Every Saturday night, my mom put my hair in curlers, and Sunday morning, I um, woke up and put on my Sunday best. Um, I was always so excited to fill out my offering envelope and put my dollar in there and write my name on it and to get to put it in the offering plate when it came by. We, when we would arrive, we were given a bulletin which had a list of the order of service. Um, we'd have the call to worship and the special music and the offertory hymn and prayers and the offertory and the message and the closing hymn. And I meticulously checked off every little thing as it happened. We stood up, we sat down, we bowed our heads, and we left. 
And I felt really good about being a good Christian girl and going to church and doing all the things that I needed to do to be a good Christian girl. It was systematic and it was predictable. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm very grateful for the foundation I have received from the church I grew up in. Those people loved me. They pointed me to Jesus. And by God's grace, those things that I learned as a child made their way from my head to my heart. But in the next section we're going to read in verse 14, it says the Bible calls these traditions that we cling to, these things that make us feel like good Christians, or in this case, what the Hebrews were depending on, the Bible calls them useless rituals or acts that lead to death because they don't lead to life. They can't clear the conscience, as verse 9 says. And so although it's not bad to dress up for church, I actually really enjoy dressing up for church. I still, it's still something I enjoy doing. But that does not earn our favor with God. That does not clear our conscience. And although it's wonderful for us to give an offering and to be a part of what God is doing, in fact, I believe he, he wants us to take part in what he's doing in the church and in the community and to, give, and to give back. But we're not paying for our sins. We're not clearing our conscience. It's not a bad thing to be involved in lots of different ministries, but I think it's important to check our heart and make sure we're doing it out of the overflow of who he is, not because we're trying to earn favor or trying to pay him back or trying to use these rituals to earn our way to God. Only Christ can clear our conscience. Only Christ can pay our sins. Only his sacrifice on the cross, what he did on the cross, dying for our sins, made a way for us. It cleared, clears our conscience if we would receive it. So now I want us to look at Christ as our great high priest. Who is he and what has he done for us? So looking in verse 11, it says, When Christ came as high priest to the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the of blood of goats and calves. But he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremony un, ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death? So that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect from the one while the one who made it is actually living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. Here he's talking about the Ten Commandments, the first covenant. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. 
but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most high place, most holy place, every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So there's just a a few things that I want to unpick from these verses. Um, The first thing I noticed when I'm looking at the heavenly tabernacle versus the earthly tabernacle is that in this case, blood was still required. Um, Verse 22 says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so why is that? It's because blood indicates death. And without death, blood has no saving value. Blood has saving value in this, in this situation because Christ died for us. A sacrifice was required for our forgiveness. We are all sinful. We're all born into sin. And blood, sac- blood um, shows that death has happened. Blood has no saving value without death. A sacrifice was required, and Jesus gave his life so that we might have life. I love the song that we sang earlier, talking about nothing but the blood of Jesus. Because his blood indicates that he gave his life for our sins, that we might have life. He gave his life so that we might have life. The second thing is that Jesus is a better mediator. He's the go-between. He's the one that approaches God on our behalf. We no longer have to send the high priest in to the most holy place. We no longer have to depend on a human to be able to do that for us. Christ is the go-between. The priest could not offer good enough sacrifices or good enough forgiveness. We now enter through Jesus Christ, who is the perfect sacrifice. We know that his sacrifice is good enough, that it satisfies the Father. And so there's four things I want to pull out, four ways that Jesus is better. The first one is that he entered the heavenly tabernacle, not a man-made one. So verse 11 says, When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. And then in verse 24... It says, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. The sanctuary where God serves is heaven itself. He is no longer, he is not limited like the priests were to an earthly building. He is in heaven, interceding in the present for us on our behalf. It's not a once a day, a one, once a year thing that the high priest goes in, he is in heaven interceding on our behalf for us as I speak. The second thing is that he enters by his own blood. Verse 12 says, He did not enter by the means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The sacrificer was also the sacrifice. Jesus was the high priest but he was also the sacrifice. 
Because he entered by his own blood, he was able to secure eternal redemption for all who would believe. He didn't didn't have to go and offer um, sacrifice for his sins because Christ was sinless. But he was able to go for our sins by his own blood and provide forgiveness for us. So the third thing is that he entered once and for all. Verse 25 says, Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Unlike the earthly high priest whose job was never finished and he had to enter the tabernacle year after year, Christ completed the job. Sin is more than just covered. It is destroyed, forgiven, and forgotten. When Christ gave up his spirit on the cross, he said, it is finished. The old way is done. There is now forgiveness. There's a new way. It tells us also that when Christ gave up his spirit, that the curtain in between the holy place and the most holy place, separating where God's presence would come, that the curtain was torn. And that is symbolic of saying the way was opened. There was no longer the great high priest who had to go in, but the way was opened. All of us can approach God now through Jesus. The way is open for all of us. And the fourth thing, the fourth reason Jesus' sacrifice is better is that he will come again, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation. Verse 28 says, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. On the Day of Atonement, the one day every year when the high priest would enter in, the people waited for the high priest to come out of the most holy place so that they would know that their sacrifice had been accepted. And when Christ appears a second time, it will be confirmation that the Father has been fully satisfied with the Son's sacrifice on our behalf, on behalf of all believers. At that point, salvation will be complete. And we will spend forever in the presence of God. Christ won't come again to bear sin. He's, he's, done, he's dealt with it. He will come again to bring salvation. John MacArthur explains Christ's ministry this way. He says the first advent, the first coming of Christ, when Christ was born as a baby, was to save us from the penalty of sin. To take care of it, he died on the cross that we might be forgiven for our sins. The second thing is that his present intercessory ministry in heaven is saving us from the power of sin. And then the third thing, his second advent, his second coming, will deliver us from the presence of sin. The Bible tells us that when Christ comes back to take his people to heaven, that heaven is a place of no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more sin. And we will be delivered from the presence of sin Because we will be in eternal bliss with Jesus Christ in heaven. For those of us that believe, it's available to all of us. And so, what does this mean for us today? I want to just briefly look at the tabernacle today. And I want to look at a couple verses that are actually not in Hebrews, but I hope will kind of help us make sense of what this means for us today, what the tabernacle means for us today. Um, John's gospel doesn't cover um, Christ's birth story like Matthew and Luke do. But it looks more at the incarnation, which is God coming to earth as a man. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Christ 
All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And so in John 1, 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've already seen that the tabernacle was a place where God dwelt with his people. It was the place the people could be with God. And, and, and um, in the original Greek, the dwelt from John 1 actually means tabernacled. In the NIV, the New International Version, it says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In the Holman Christian Standard Bible, it says the word became flesh and took up residence among us. In the Amplified Bible, it says the word Christ became flesh and lived among us. And in, the, in Young's literal translation, it says, And the word became flesh and did tabernacle among us. The tabernacle of the Old Testament points ahead to God's presence with us, his people. And that presence came in the form of a baby, Jesus. In Matthew one twenty three, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so not only does Christ tabernacle among us, he's not limited to a building, to a tabernacle anymore. He is here with us this morning, but he is not just in this building. He tabernacles among us. He's in our workplaces. He's in our homes. He's in the car with us. He is with us as we leave. He is among us. He's not limited to one place. But also, we are the tabernacle. In 1 Corinthians six nineteen, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you've received from God? So not only does Christ tabernacle among us, but he tabernacles within us through his Holy Spirit. For those of us who know Christ, he dwells within us by his Spirit. We are the tabernacles. And this can be true of every one of us here this morning, whether we know Christ or not. For those who haven't yet accepted Christ as your Savior, know that he longs for you to receive his sacrifice. You are why he died on the cross. You are why his blood was shed. You are why he gave his life. And he wants you to know full forgiveness and ultimate hope. He wants to tabernacle among you and within you. I'm going to ask um, if the band will now come back up. Um, we're going to close with a song that may be familiar to some of you. It may be one that you've heard before. It may be one that you've not heard before. But my hope today is that regardless of the song, um, if you know it or not or familiar or not, is that the words would be fresh and new to you this morning. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. We have a strong and perfect plea because of Jesus. In our sinfulness, in our shortcomings, in our weakness, he came to us. Receive that truth today. Live in that truth forever. His name is love.